This week on Cool Story with Bree and Bridie, Bridie's trip to the hospital, Andrea Longchu's takedown of Zadie Smith, and the true cost of getting your food delivered. This is Cool Story. I'm Bree Lee. And I'm Bridie Jabal. Bree, what have you been up to this week? I finished the line edits on my novel. God, congratulations. An incredibly big moment that I'm sure was very underwhelming at the same time as well. Thank you very much (laughs) for acknowledging that. It's just like 6.15pm and I was sitting at my desk in my like sort of co-working office space. Hit send on this enormous email and just like nobody's there. (laughs) Nobody cares. (laughs) But it's such a huge milestone. And like you know what it's like. This The pipeline from idea for a book to like book actually coming out is so long even well, and especially this one for you what yeah. is this five years when it comes out in april next year it will have been over five years of working on it wow and even like obviously the pipeline for drafting it and sort of polishing it yourself is long but i think i forget every time how long then the sort of industry part of the pipeline takes like the structural edits then the line edits and copy edits and now it goes away and they print it out and I have a copy to proofread and then we do the like there are just so many milestones but finishing the copy edits is a huge one and well I just done did it. thank you it's also a bit anticlimactic doing finishing line edits on a Monday was it a Monday yeah Monday yeah, because there's no vibe. even when you walk out onto the street if you did it on a Friday or a Thursday that at least be like a vibe on yeah. the street yeah and there's no vibe no. like it's just silent city walk home yeah did you do anything well I also no well for me having a whole weekend off is a huge deal So this weekend I had Saturday and Sunday with just my husband and I hanging out, being human beings for the first time in probably like three months that we just had two full days in a row off and it was revolutionary. What a treat. What a treat. Yeah. What about you? I got to go to the hospital. (laughs) Which which one? Which is something that happens uh, semi-frequently after you have kids the amazing thing about children, one of the amazing things about children, is how quickly they can completely derail your day. Like they're, And I'm sure this will happen my for the rest of my life because I'm sure you can get a phone call when they're like 28 years old that stuffs up your day as well. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like the maybe the frequency of the incidents decreases but the severity increases. Yeah, like they, it's always something very out of your control that can absolutely like trash your day. So... I was working from home and I went for a run in the morning and thank God I was working from home because when I came back, Hamish opened the door, my five-year-old, had said, I didn't mean to hit him with the spoon. I didn't mean to hit him with the spoon. I was like, oh, whatever. Yeah, okay, you didn't mean to hit him with the spoon. Him, your brother, I don't know what, I don't care. And then it's a spoon. How much damage can it do? Well, quite a lot, it turns out. He'd actually hit his father, Matty Q., and because then Maddie appeared in the doorway and I was like, oh, my God. And his eye was bleeding and so swollen. And Hamish had done this, in, pulled off this incredible feat that you would never be able to do in 50 years of taking that shot every day if you tried to land that spoon where he landed it. He threw a spoon at Maddie and hit his eyelid and cut his eyelid open like right on the eyeball. And fully like, and Matt's like, I think I have to get stitches. I said, you don't have to get stitches. You can't get stitches on your eye. And I look closer and I thought, oh, my God, it's like such a weird deep cut. So I did what I always do. Oh, actually, this plays into the theme of ruining your mum's day. Well, no matter what age you are. I rang my mum. <laughs> <laughs> it's this like up the generation's yeah. domino effect. <laughs> it's above my pay grade. I kicked it up the chain. Because <laughs> she's a nurse and it's, like, oh, it's incredible to have it. Um, nurse mother when you've got little kids because I there's there's so much there's so many times where you don't know if it's serious or not serious and I can always just ring her and she tells me and so um I rang her and FaceTimed and showed showed her Matt's eyelid and she said you had that's an eye injury you need to at least go to the doctor that looks quite serious and Hamish was not contrite 
which made it even worse. He kept being a brat. So the red mist really descends. Like if something's an accident and your kid is really mortified and sorry, or anyone I guess in your life, then, you know, I have a lot of compassion for that and I get over it very quickly. But what drove me insane is that he kept whinging about not wanting to go to school and he had thrown the spoon at Matt because Matt didn't have any LCMs for his lunchbox. I'm going to ask you a delicate question. Are you worried that your kid is a shithead? Am I worried that he's a shithead? Yeah. This week I know he's a shithead. <laughs> yeah, like. No, that is it because but, he's such a sweetie and so when he behaves like this, it did concern me because, yeah, it makes you think, oh, no, this kid is a shithead. And he is usually so sweet. Yeah. You know, he has a little brother that is always shaping up to him, that pushes him, that takes him on all the time. And I know Hamish has never used the full force of his strength on him. So there's like little sweet things like that. Like I see, even when he's angry, I see him hold back a bit. Yeah, like he threw a spoon, not a knife. Yeah, but still. <laughs> but then he wasn't sorry when his dad's eye was bleeding. And so I rang mum. Well, I didn't really ruin her day, although she was concerned. She said, go to the doctor. And Hamish was still like, I don't want to go to school. Guess who's not getting LCMs for the rest of the year, by the way. Oh, yeah. They are that's... not going in his lunchbox. Also, my mum, who can always find a way to be on Hamish's side, no matter what, said... <laughs> Well, you shouldn't put that sugary shit in his lunchbox anyway. <laughs> and, yeah, I was like, great, thanks for being on your soulmate Yeah, side. if he had been munching on sugar-free nut bars. Yeah, then he's he not throwing a spoon yeah. over the sugar-free nut, nut bars. He's just, he's in kindergarten. It's end of term three. He's just hitting the wall in a massive way and you just got to deal with it. Anyway, I was pretty angry at him and he knew it. So next time you see a mum being a real massive bitch to a kid at drop-off, think maybe he's just given his dad an eye injury and yeah. don't judge the mom because oh. I was so mean to him at drop-off I would barely even say goodbye to him I was like get out of my sight but that's what I presume every time I see a parent any parent like being harsh with their kid my automatic presumption is that the kid has done something shit good that's exactly what you think <laughs> because that is usually exactly what has happened yeah the kid deserves it <laughs> The only thing remotely close to that I have is that I have this dog, Judith, who's obviously beautiful, but she it's the first dog I've ever met in my whole life who doesn't, like, enjoy walking on a lead. And I know that you train dogs to walk on leads. I have been training Judith. There are all kinds of wonderful things she can do and she's pretty much well-behaved. But because she's a scent hound and she's a specific type of scent hound, she's been, like, her breed has been trained for generations to run ahead of the human being around in the forest and sniff out rabbits in particular. And the idea that she would follow a human close to them and not use her nose is clearly just this absolute disconnect. And so I walk mute it and I'm like dragging her along and she's this adorable little doggy with big floppy ears and gigantic fucking eyeballs and everyone constantly looks at me like I'm a criminal. And that's the only, that's, I'm like. Do you worry that your dog is a shithead? Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I know my dog. <laughs> anyway, he yeah. Matt, Maddie ended up. So I took him to the doctor. The doctor's like, "You got this is too hectic. You've got to go to hospital." He had to see like a plastic surgeon. It was so. It was like such. And I had to drive him everywhere, obviously, because he had an eye injury, so he couldn't take himself. And then when I went to school pickup that afternoon, because I said I told one of my mates about it, and he was like. Oh, do you remember when you done when you done something really, really bad, and then you had to think about it all day at school? He's like, I remember that feeling of being at school, being like, oh, I've like, I've totally cooked this. I thought, oh, maybe it, he it is weighing on him. Went to school pickup, and Hamish had tried to go to after school care <laughs> to avoid me. <laughs> <laughs> that speaks to a guilty conscience. Yeah, and yeah. he wouldn't even look at me when he came oh. out. He was like head down, like yeah, he knew he had oh. been he had been stewing. Oh, anyway, all's yeah. well that ends well. Maddie's eyes healing, and Hamish is not getting LCMs until next year. <laughs> what else did you do this week? Was there anything else besides finishing your book? Yes. Well, regular listeners would recall that I invited you to the opening night of The Importance of Being Earnest <laughs> and you declined my invitation. Because um, I had a prior, <laughs> well, amazingly for Bridie, a prior commitment with a family member. <laughs> <laughs> and I just want to say, I won't go into it 
into too much detail, obviously because it's only showing here in Sydney for now, but I think this show is so good that it may very well tour. You say this every week. What? Well, well, I've been right so far. So, yeah, maybe I'm like have my finger on the pulse, Brady. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, keep going. I think it's really rare to see an Oscar Wilde adaptation that actually does something a bit fresh and new. You know, there, there are some texts or some writers or artists whose work is just, I mean, it's because it's so good, it's done so often and then this like snake eats its tail sort of thing where I'm sceptical about whether or not it will actually be good just because it's been regurgitated. Totally. And especially after one of the most recent ones was the picture of Dorian Gray. Yeah, like which, how do you top that interpretation of an Oscar Wilde work? Yeah. Which I would also like to add I picked was so good. <laughs> there on opening night, raved about it. And it has done precisely what I thought it would. Anyway, this new adaptation is so good. And it's like, I want to specifically say why. Whoever cast it is a fucking genius. There's this actress in the role of Gwendolyn. Her name is Megan Wilding. And it's the first time that I have seen this script, either on like screen or live in the theater, where the women characters, in particular the character of Gwendolyn, are like actually these sort of like really dynamic, like punchy presences instead of that like lilting English rose, like well-behaved lady of the era. And it made me realise anew, which is pretty huge, how funny what Oscar Wilde's writing was for the women characters in that script, not only the men characters in that script. And I was laughing so hard that at intermission, the person to my left, the like we all clapped, the lights came up, the person to my left turned to me, touched my forearm and said, I'm so glad this is doing so much for you. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I know. Yeah, so if you're in Sydney, go see it. You will, even if you've seen a million importance of being earnest variations, this one is new and fresh. And the other quick thing I'll mention about it is that they add in this kind of cheeky little subplot sort of extra facet about the help, about the sort of class differential between the service staff. And it's only like takes up a little bit of time and space, but it pays back in spades and makes that little sort of risk absolutely worth it in a delicious way. Love it. Yeah, really good. I also have to issue a correction on last week's episode. Our first correction. Ooh, what spicy. A I said that my dad knitted blankets. He actually crochets blankets. Oh. Thanks for the correction from listener and aunt to me, Anne-Marie. <laughs> <laughs> Dare I ask, like, what's the fucking difference between knitting and crocheting? I don't know okay. because All I right. am not creative okay. in that way, but there is obviously a difference. <laughs> uh, there must be some technical difference. I'm not, yeah, let's not I go didn't into that. Ask, I feel like we're going to piss people off. <laughs> I didn't ask Anne-Marie, but I don't know if Anne-Marie would know, but maybe, oh, maybe I'll hit my dad up and this correction can roll over three episodes. <laughs> Listeners fascinated to learn about the (laughs) wide world of knitting and crocheting. I also read a great book this week, actually, a novel by an Australian, Stephanie Bishop, who lives in England and teaches creative writing Mm -hmm. over there. And the book is called The Anniversary. Have you heard of it? I think you... Yes. Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, it came... It's fairly recent. It came out in the um, past few months. So well written. And it's essentially a thriller about the demise demise it's essentially <laughs> demise shut up sorry i'm not laughing at you i'm laughing at I know, the no, word I know. demise i know i know no i'm going to correct it sam's going to have to take that out because no he's not <laughs> i think it's very relatable to mispronounce words okay um i do it means you've read things but not heard them and you're like i don't know it's totally all, yeah. i'm very relatable <laughs> Um, (laughs) it's essentially about the demise of a marriage, but written as a thriller. And it was so pacey and so interesting and like layer upon layer ripped back, you know, from chapter to chapter, you're kind of changing your mind a bit. And it was done in a really, I felt original way as well. And just like really well written and just a very fun read. And at the end of the book, 
at the end of the book, I think you don't really know whose side you're on. Oh, yeah. There's no clear cut. That's rare. Right side. Yes, exactly. And at the end of the book, you have some realizations about the narrator. It's not that she is a unreliable narrator. It's not that kind of trope, but you just have some realizations of things that are subtly um, woven through the narrative at the book kind of all come together for you. Well, it did for me at the end. And I thought, actually, I think that I thought she was this type of person and I actually think she's that type of person. And it doesn't mean I thought she was a good person, but actually she's a bad person. Mm. She's just a different type of person to what I realised. Really enjoyable, a great, like if, you, if you're if you in a reading slump and you want to get out of it, it's a great book for that. Yes, I love those. Yeah. Also it sounds like she's nailed that thing between um, like sort of literary in terms of it being a complex character study and actually like page turner. Exactly. It is. Yeah. I I would describe it as literary for sure, but Mm. done in that page turn, which is incredibly difficult to pull off. That's the hardest thing to pull off. That's the, that's this dream sweet spot goal Venn diagram overlap that like 2% of us can nail. What I saw a lot of people talking about this week was someone coming for Zadie Smith. She took a shot. Someone went for the queen. (laughs) I like squealed when I saw. So what we're talking about is Andrea Longchu, who in my opinion is one of the most exciting like critics, cultural critics currently at work, at least in the English language that I know of. When I saw Andrea Longchu come for Zadie Smith, I did a squeal and then tried and struggled and failed to explain the significance of this moment to my husband. <laughs> He's, oh, so someone's like taken down Zadie Smith and like cancelled her and I'm like you don't get it <laughs> you yeah. don't get who yeah like um so Andrea Longchu two pieces of hers that she's sort of most famous for recently are these super chewy meaty critical engagements with the works of Hanya Yanagihara and Otessa Moshveg and if you don't know who I'm talking about or if you don't know sort of what I'm talking about, I strongly recommend checking out Andrea Longchu's work. And this morning when I was walking my dog, cruelly, I listened <laughs> to her. Andrea Longchu was a guest on M. Ratter's podcast, Hilo, which I wouldn't have picked as a pairing um, until I realised that Andrea Longchu wrote a profile of M. Ratter that was quite positive and then Amrata invited Andrea Longchu onto the podcast. Anyway, that podcast episode I think is actually a really good sort of introduction to what you need to know about Andrea Longchu's work and like her positions on things. And two things they want they mentioned about the work I will paraphrase here. The first is that Andrea Longchu's, these articles that she writes, so the latest one um, I, obviously Bridie and I will talk about is this one about Zadie Smith, but the other two I mentioned about Hanya Yanagihara and Otessa Moshveg. They're not just reviews, right, and they're not even just reviews of multiple works from an author. What they actually are is literary profiles. And they, so for example, the one on Yanagihara went into Yanagihara's work as the editor of a luxury magazine and the way she sort of puts her more journalism lifestyle pieces together. And Andrea Longchu found a passage from an old edition of this sort of luxury travel magazine that was like very, very similar to a passage in one of Yanagihara's novels. And then with Otessa Moshfegs, she went and like found Otessa Moshfeg's Depop <laughs> and and now with Zadie Smith's she has done a really deep dive into various comments that Zadie Smith has made in lectures and in essays for like well over a decade now. They are these really complex and multifaceted literary profiles. They're not just book reviews. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes sense. I know we're about to discuss the article, but I have an issue with the way that she took those sentences out of a decade of work and which sentences she chose. Yes. Okay. So the headline of this latest work by Andrea Longchu, and we should say she just won the Pulitzer for criticism, is how Zadie Smith lost her teeth. 
Since her audacious debut, the author has moved toward realism and become the least interesting version of herself. Oof, which is like such a brutal headline. So lame. Um, <laughs> so, for example, two very short bits that just to give you listeners an idea of how strong Andrea Longchu's language and sort of declaratory nature can be. Zadie Smith talks about how much she can't stand reading White Teeth anymore. White Teeth was her like colossal debut that came out when she was in her early 20s and is a big, big book. And this is Andrea Longchu writing now. A novelist has a sacred right to hate her first novel, but White Teeth remains by far the best thing Smith has ever written. What bad luck to have done it by 24. Very funny line, but wrong. (laughs) So what didn't you like about this? I felt her back wasn't in it. What do you mean? I I don't believe this essay. <gasps> you think you think she's lying? I don't think she's lying. That's not that's not what I think. I think that she wants another I think that maybe she's become a little bit addicted to viral pieces taking down sacred cows. Not that the other writers were sacred cows or like very beloved writers. I think that she really meant those and had real critiques in those previous essays. In this essay, I didn't, I feel like she's thought it would be interesting to do a piece critiquing Zadie Smith or taking down Zadie Smith, critiquing Zadie Smith in a way that she's not usually critiqued. And that's been her jumping off point rather than coming to it as I actually think this about Zadie Smith. You know, the, the two different ways that you can come to a piece where yes. it's your actual opinions or thoughts first rather than subject first. I really felt in this essay she came subject first. Yeah, almost like it had been assigned to her. Yeah. Oh, And she's still done a good job but it doesn't have the same like ring of really genuine like interrogation. Yeah. I don't think it's a genuine interrogation. I think there is an element in this of her wanting to shock and looking for ways to do it. I think that it is, and it's not that um, I think that Zadie Smith is beyond critique. I I would love to read, you know, a really proper interrogation of her work, but I just don't think that this one is it. I think that parts of it were quite shallow and lazy in a way. Like what? The quotes, so a lot of those essays she quoted Zadie on, she's Mm. basically accusing Zadie of being a centrist which I just don't think is true either. And she also in it accuses, there's this line in it where she says Zadie would rather be faintly ridiculous all of the time than incorrect some of the time, which I just don't understand how you can engage with Zadie's work at all and say that with a straight face or come to that conclusion. I just do not think that's true. I think that Zadie's positions, her essays, her public statements are very, very thought through by Zadie. I don't think that she is being fatally ridiculous. I think that she truly does think a lot about what she thinks and then says it. And so I disagreed with that. The And all the essays that I had read over the past few years, the sentences that she pulled out and put in this essay, I thought were unfair representations of those essays, in particular two of them, mm. one about Lydia Tarr and the other essay about an artwork done about Emmett Till, I think it was. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I read both and I thought those were unfair representations of those essays. I also just think it's bonkers to say White Teeth is her best work. It It's a good book but it is very immature in ways and I think in the context of all of Zadie's books, I think that it is very obviously an immature work. And I also think that it is just wrong to say she's become the most boring version of herself when every single novel has been different and a different experimentation in writing from different points of views, different times. Like she, she could have done white teeth again and again and again and again. She could have even done on beauty again and again and again. And she did it. Every single novel is actually genuinely unique and Mm. written in a different way. So I think that coming, you know, if her base argument is that Zadie Smith has become the most boring version of herself, I think that that's just completely wrong premise to begin from and then therefore the whole essay suffers from it. Mm. Something I think is interesting here that I want to 
talk with you about is that listening to Andrea Longchu talk about her work on this podcast and say that her position, like the way she comes to write these literary profiles is that you can't, an author can't just have this sort of art here and then all of their politics there and expect us to like artificially separate those two things. And in general, that's a position I can absolutely fuck with. Like, yeah, I, yeah dig that, 100% dig that. And that's why I find so much of her work so exciting and good. And why I like the idea that she goes and looks at an author, not just in an author's entire back catalogue of like published books, but like what they say when they accept awards and how they behave online and what their sort of expressed politics are versus what like sort of comes through in a decade of fiction or, or nonfiction, whatever it is. But what I th- didn't like with this Zadie Smith one or what didn't – I found it almost like inaccurate perhaps is that in going back to so many years throughout an author's essays that they publish and like speeches and lectures that they give in between their major works – there is a risk that you flatten that author's expressions to like sort of bring them all into a like perpetual present or treat all their expressions as of equal value to like the work they're doing now. And that is sort of not, I think that's not okay when you're talking about an author who's like one of her collections is literally called Changing My Mind. Exactly what I was about to say. I'm like very, it's especially odd to do it to an author who has a collection called Changing Changing My My Mind Mind. and writes a core part of my ideology. And something that I really respect about Zadie is that she changes her mind on positions quite often after deep interrogation and deep thought. Yeah. But she's always, she open for the debate and the critique. Yeah. And I think that it's something that I try pretty hard to emulate because it's something I so admire and respect in someone like Zadie Smith is that either, and it's not just about being wrong and sort of, you know, like posting an an apology and an acknowledgement if you've actually fucked up, but it's also just being willing to revisit your previous positions and genuinely reassess them to see whether or not you've changed or the world has changed. And I just wanted, I guess, a bit more of an acknowledgement that if you're quoting something like I'm just looking at a page, one random page here. And it's like things that Zadie Smith said in a talk about after the like 2008 election of Barack Obama, like you can't put a sentence from that against a sentence said this year and suggest that both are as accurate as each other in terms of how we understand what this author's like position and work is now. And she tried to caveat that line. Like I think she knows that what she was doing was dishonest in some ways because she said, and a lot of us, you know, a lot of people in the blush of Obama's win said something they don't think now and then just carried on. And I thought, well, why include it then? And why use that line as some representation of what she thinks now and then acknowledge that, it's said in such a, like an extremely different circumstance and then move on as if it's still part of your argument. Yeah. And also I thought this piece, the other thing I thought about this piece was, oh, no, she's gotten so big that she's not being edited properly. That's what I really saw in this piece was like with a good edit it could have been a great critique. She's still very talented and there are mm. some good points in it, but I really felt like she was allowed to write as long as she wants say what she wants and that the editing was not as vigorous as it might once have been for her, you know, a few years ago, pre-Pulitzer or whatever. Did you rate the Yanagihara and Moshveg ones? Did you read them? Yanagihara, yes. Yes. I thought it was a brilliant piece of literary criticism and literary profiling and extremely well thought out and well written and Mm. well argued. Mm. Yep. I still... Even though there were like things that I say disagreed with about this piece on Zadie Smith, I am still like very grateful that I read it and it still augmented my appreciation for and understanding of or ability to critique Zadie Smith's work. And to me that's more a point about criticism, that it's not just about whether this is a quote-unquote like good review or bad review. It's like did this deepen and enhance my understanding? And the answer for me is that 
is yes. It still did that for me. It gave me a few things to think about, but it just did not go far enough down those issues or points raised. Zadie Smith would have absolutely read this. Do you? Yeah. How how do you think? How do you think she would have felt reading it? Um. Well, different. That's hard because Zadie Smith's so great. Um, and so self-assured. Yes. And it seems pretty minimum ego. Yes. Do you think she would? I don't know that she would read it immediately. Something I do these days, and I want to know what you do. This approach was taught to me by um, Chris Neen, the author based in Brisbane, that when they tour their books – they, if there's a, any review, good or bad, that comes out, they get their partner to read it and then just sort of give them the gist and like paraphrase it. Ah, uh, and it, I do this. I get my husband to do this for me now because, interestingly, as to paraphrase from Yana Gahara, who said this to me when I interviewed her once, the good reviews are never good enough, and the bad ones you can never forget. <laughs> and that was so true for me with my experience with Eggshell Skull. Just that Eggshell Skull, and then beauty coming out shortly shortly afterwards that when there was a review that came out that I was felt burned by if I had actually read it a sentence or a phrase would just lodge itself in my brain if I know the word the exact wording that someone has used it becomes like a lyric that I can never forget whereas if I get somebody else to paraphrase it for me and give me the gist it's like the sting of it has been removed yes and the danger of it getting lodged and becoming like a lyric is that it can make you self-conscious. Yeah. And you cannot take that self-consciousness into your next work. But I also now no longer read my reviews. Do you read your reviews? Mostly. So I've had some interesting reviews over the years. When my novel came out in 2018, it was reviewed very well in The Australian, which I loved and read every word of. (laughs) can't remember a single line just remember the feeling it was reviewed in the smh not that well and there was a line in it that said the zest in bridie's journalism does not carry over into this novel it lodged yeah it lodged it lodged it lodged and i also think it was fair I think it, it was one of those things that I kind of it lodged myself. For a like I, I thought myself, and and that kind of lodging, I think, can make your next work better. Because that's the thing; it can either make you self conscious or it can make your next work better when you know what your weaknesses are. So I, yeah, and I remember that. And then my second book came out, and there was an absolutely scathing review in the Sydney Morning Herald, which I read from beginning to end. Do you have a physiological response? No, because the review was so bad, as in badly argued and badly written, Ah. that I was actually, it was ridiculous to me and I thought it was really funny. Like in this review, this reviewer had wrote. This is of Trivial Grievances. Of Trivial Grievances, my brilliant work of nonfiction, still available at most bookstores. At all good bookstores for (laughs) $29.99. I don't know how much it is, sorry. If If you like listening to me chat on this podcast, that book is most like me talking and thinking. Um, anyway, it began with this ramble about the reviewer being at lunch or something with someone and saying, Bridie Jabor, whatever happened to her? And the other person saying, she had a baby. What? <laughs> Which was so funny. One, relevance. Like where is the relevance? Also that is like. The, the review was written by a woman, but the insane misogyny in that. <laughs> I'm grappling with the irony yeah. here. That- and also thirdly, when I had my first baby, my first book came out four months later and I had all this insane press and PR while on maternity leave. Then I went back to The Guardian and was still doing like all the things that I'd previously done, like editing, occasionally writing, appearing on TV. Then I got pregnant again and had another book deal <laughs> and then got this book. Like, what are you talking about? That my life was over when I had, and I disappeared when I had children. I worked, not that I have to justify myself, but it just shows how incorrect it was. Like, mm. I worked through my maternity leaves and I had these books. Like, what are you talking about? And also, how is this relevant? No, not enough, Bridie. Not <laughs> enough. And then 
the book, the, the, the real, it was actually, I couldn't take it seriously because of how nasty the tone was. Felt a bit sorry for it because I really feel honestly that her editors let her down. Mm. And also I felt that she hadn't actually read the book properly because she made these sweeping statements about me in the review that were just incorrect. And if you had like given any thought while reading my book, you could see in between the lines. Like what? Like she referenced a privileged upbringing. Mm. And I'm like in the book, like I had a great upbringing, like very loving and stuff. But like I grew up in a country town and my parents were nurses. Like what are you talking? I didn't come to Sydney with any connections or, you know, anything like that. I'm not not even from a family of writers. There were a few writers in the family actually, but, you know, not Not making their living from writing. Anyway, so it was just that kind of stuff. I was like, how can I take you seriously when if you'd properly read the book, like how can you say that if you had properly read this book? Yeah. And so I didn't take it that Seriously, and I thought it was ridiculous, although I've obviously remembered it. And then (laughs) there was another review that seems like it was quite scathing that I never read and I sent it to Maddie and I sent it to my friend Georgia and said, can you please read this for me and just got them to tell me. Yeah. And Matt, Matt's reaction was so sweet because he was just so cranky about it. And he, and he came back and he was like, it's just bullshit. Yeah. It's just bullshit. What a fucking idiot. Don't yeah, worry. It's just <laughs> bullshit. Which is so nice. And then Georgia, who can be, you know, she's so great. She's so smart and she just like knows how to, she just gets shit done. She's just that type of person. So she knew what I needed. So she came back with bullet point overview oh, of what, chef's of, kiss. Yeah, what yeah. was in it, which I knew she would. And then said, I don't think that you need to read this. I don't think that you should read it. Here's ba- it's not that bad, but here's basically what it said. Yeah. And that's what I needed, which is so funny that I didn't realise that this is obviously a fairly common thing for writers to get someone close to them to read and then brief them. I don't know how common it is, but it's certainly like a golden nugget of advice that I am wish I had from the very beginning, but I'm glad I had at least from like the end of book two onwards. Well, I figured it out myself. <laughs> When I saw this headline, I don't want to read this. I'm going to send it to other people to read it for me. But it was like a huge unlocking of like or a sense of permission for me when my publisher, who also publishes Michelle de Kretzer, told me that Michelle de Kretzer doesn't read any of her reviews. Another brilliant writer. Yeah. And I'm like, well, Michelle de Kretzer is fucking excellent. Like, fuck it. (laughs) And she's obviously not improving her work by reading reviews. And the justification for me as well personally is that I – Whilst I don't, whilst I no longer read any book reviews of my books, I read multiple book reviews every week of other people's books. And I'm not a total fucking idiot. Like if somebody makes a complaint or an incisive criticism about somebody else's work, I can identify whether or not that might apply to mine. You know what I mean? Like oh, you true. just yeah. like. I usually read reviews after I've read the book. Yeah, I'm I try to. the movies and stuff as well. Yeah, yeah I try, I try to come to. to it clean. Yeah. I tried to come to the Sex and the City 2 movie clean. (laughs) (laughs) The other thing for me that's been a huge decision and it's a decision I've made in a sort of like um, academic, like rational sense, which I still then have to like remind myself of, is my opinion that no one reader's experience of reading my work is any more or less valid than any other one reader's experience of reading my book. And, like, when I think about reading, the meeting of a reader with a book is a unique chemical reaction every time. Even if it's the same reader with the same book again at a later stage in exactly. their life. Exactly. It just so unique... depends on where you are yeah. in life, what you get from a book. Yeah. And as soon as you acknowledge that as a starting point, then it sort of flattens or, like, removes the ability for some reviews to, like, sting you any more or flatter you any more than any others. So, for example, I know that a critic wrote a really negative review of who gets to be smart for The Guardian, but in my genuine opinion, that is no more or less valid than somebody who takes a picture of it and writes a scathing review of it and tags me on Instagram. Like no one person's opinion is more or less valid. It may be more or less widely read around the subject matter. It may be more or less kind of like informed in some way. It may certainly be more or less genuine, but those are like, you just like can't, I don't listen to, you can't afford to listen to any of it or like. Although I do love 
when someone writes to me on Instagram or finds my email and emails me who's had a very that's personal reaction though. to the book. This is yeah. the only thing that I actually read and believe and, is when somebody sends and means something. Yeah. When somebody sends me a personal correspondence. And about what it specifically meant to them. And it's not a critique of the book or how well it's no. written or it's a description whatever. of the chemical interaction. Yeah. And of their you know, that them feeling seen usually or relating to something or making them think about it something in a different way. Or just the right book at the right time. Yeah. In their life. I love getting those. Yeah. Because obviously they're usually very flattering as well. <laughs> yeah. It's very, yeah, very rare. Oh, I would like to use this opportunity to beg everyone to stop tagging me in bad reviews of my work. I find that really pathetic. It is pathetic. I, I can usually tell and I just don't read. Yeah, yeah, I same. just ignore. But, but like, I'm like, why are you tagging me? Just put it on. Yeah, put, honestly, write whatever you and want. And when I write a... When I post on my um, Insta stories that I've read a book and I haven't liked it, I never tag the author. No, just don't tag. Yeah, Do I whatever just, you yeah. want, but, like, don't tag them. It, like, screams to me like a sort of attempt to take a shot rather than an actual genuine engagement with the work. Big story of the week also. Biggest story of the week is the closing the loopholes legislation. Which I love that name for legislation. Yeah, I like it when they give legislation a snappy little. Yeah, like, and it's title. Just, it's but it's also it's such a funny vague name closing <laughs> the loopholes. So this is legislation. It's actually it didn't pass the parliament this week. It's going to go to Senate inquiry. It's a workplace relations bill that could affect millions of consumers in cities and also just people beyond our cities, and it's about trying to take on the gig economy hmm. and the gig economy. I think when most people think of the gig economy, we think of Uber Eats deliverers or yep. food delivery people on bikes, and that is absolutely an element of this legislation. But it's also truck drivers now in Australia. So decades ago you could get put on these contracts in truck driving where you get rolling 12-month contracts but you're guaranteed each year to go up in pay and to get some annual leave and superannuation. Yeah. So very, very good conditions. Now that's been rolled back bit by bit where the new contracts that people get put on have nowhere near as many rights and they can work 70 to 80 hours a week, these truck drivers who are, you know, who are delivering our mail, delivering whatever you order online, wherever you are And in operating Australia. heavy machinery while they yeah, do it. Yeah, and like, doing it to like strict deadlines and under bad conditions and basically not getting paid properly for it. So it covers a broad range of people. I think it could be most significant for food delivery workers and it's essentially trying to make those food delivery workers employee-like, they're calling it. So it's yeah. like a third tier because they're independent contractors at the moment, which works in a lot of prof professions such as tradies. It yeah. works to be an independent contractor. But food delivery, not so much because they have so fewer rights, low pay and not much bargaining power. Mm. And as has been proven in recent years, it's actually dangerous work. 13 recorded deaths linked to food delivery bikes. That's recorded. Like we yeah. don't, no one is giving us, you know, Uber Eats or Deliveroo when it existed or even Menulog don't actually release a statement whenever it happens. When we find out about these people dying, it's usually from journalists, like through journalist networks and people coming to the media. So it's minimum 13 people. I would say it's more. And one of the reasons it's dangerous and these people die delivering is because they get paid per delivery and not very well, rather than having an hourly rate, they don't have insurance. So when they die delivering your McFlurry, their family, and they're usually, um, their family is usually overseas in the vast majority of cases, don't get any money, don't get any compensation for, and you know, if you died on a work site, like building a tower, you your family gets you can never be properly compensated for that, can of course. you? But your family gets significant financial compensation. At the very least to acknowledge the loss of future earning. That, yeah, like exactly. Like a family would may very well be relying on. Which, and these food delivery riders, a lot of them, their families are relying on the money that they're earning. And so this new legislation would try to, would create this new tier called employee-like and would basically mean that they can have minimum rates of pay, 
more more rights and also that it's harder to sack them because I didn't realize this, but basically the food delivery apps can just deactivate a rider I whenever they want. Yeah, I didn't realize until I read this article you sent me that there is a real sort of monitoring of these delivery drivers. Oh, my God, the AI the element. The AI element that was described gave me bad goosebumps that the AI element in this will like monitor when the driver like collects the food, when they drop the food off. And if they're too slow, it will send them a notification being like, we're watching you, you're too slow, up your game. And then it deprioritizes them for next delivery. Yeah. So it prioritizes giving deliveries to people who are faster. In a classic way that a person in power will always try to make the rung below them fight amongst themselves for the scraps. Yes. So they're all trying to like race each other to so that they get the gigs. And, you know, we've had food delivery long before these apps. But the way that food delivery has usually worked is that you pay more for your pizza. Yes. And the food delivery people are hired by... The food maker. Yeah, like yes. the, the business, whether it's a chain or a small little business. They have someone on staff whose job it is to deliver. So they're getting paid an hourly rate and it doesn't matter if they have six deliveries in an hour or three. Yeah. They get the same amount of money. And then obviously insurance, um, super and all of that. So this legislation will move to give them more rights. It didn't pass this week. So keep watching how this goes because it's the crossbenchers in the Senate didn't agree to it. In, instead, it's going to an inquiry, which could be fine, but one of the key issues that the crossbenchers, there were a few issues and some of them are, le- are legitimate, like it's a good debate to have. But one of the key issues was that it could drive up the cost of what us as consumers pay for food delivery or for our parcel delivery, to which you just say, yeah, well, maybe you should be paying for that. Like, a- it, it, like it, this is a labour-intensive job and you, it's not cheap to deliver you your books to your doorway but let alone your McDonald's or whatever, and you should pay for that. I have a very strong opinion about this, and it's a generalisation I feel comfortable making. If you can pay to have your food delivered to you, you can afford to tip your driver $5 in cash every time. So do you get food delivered? Like maybe once or twice a year these days. Yeah, because you can just walk out your front door and go down the corner. That's true. But also I have been increasingly disturbed by like the deaths and lack of regulation in this area and made a conscious decision that if I ever do get food delivered, I have like a little, I have like a kitty beside the door and I give them a cash tip, a decent cash tip. Do you not trust the tipping app? No, but also I just think like it's just better for them if they have cash in hand. It's easier. They don't have to report it. Like it's just, I don't know. It's just the better better thing but to do But sometimes you don't see them. I oh. suppose they're ringing your doorbell or whatever. But no, I, I always go take it from their hand. Yeah, so I've got a house. And so it's not it's not that I oh, I didn't think ask about them that. to okay. not knock on the door or whatever, but I've got a house in the burbs, very glamorous. And they a lot of the time they, because it's a covered doorway, they just leave the oh, food yeah, okay. and leave. All right. And so for, like my I think that it is murky ethics around using food delivery services. And I, you know, I don't live that far from the city, but I am in a suburb and it does blow my mind when I'm walking around like Potts Point, King's Cross, Redfern, Erskineville, how many delivery riders there are. Like it really, yeah, in I, this inner city, it's crazy how many there are because we, I don't see that many where, like they're, they're where I am, but they're not everywhere. And so when I get them, on menu log, you can see if they're hired, if they're actually business delivery riders or they're menu log riders. Oh. Yeah. So I often, I have, um. so when I order pizza, I, I often try to order pizza from a place where it's their delivery driver because then you know they're getting paid yeah. properly. And so I do that. I would never order in bad weather. Like if it's raining or the, it's storming, I would never order food delivery. Because I think that's too risky for someone on a bike and they're usually on a bike. And I always tip 20% mm. if I do order through that. We don't actually order that frequently, but, you know, like with little kids and all that kind of thing, just sometimes oh, yeah. you use Shit it. Oh, yeah, happens. And I think it's okay to use it, and but, you yeah, you've got to try and mitigate it yeah. in some way. Yeah. 
it's just, yeah. If you can afford to get your food delivered, you can afford to tip. Yeah, absolutely. Like when you said $5, I'm like, bruh, that's low. I well, tip like, 20%. Yeah, well, it would be like, well, I don't even know what. We're not, I'm not ordering for four people though. Yeah, true. Like, yeah, true. Anyway, <laughs> now we're at the minutia. So, so, tw- so 20, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We're at the real minutia on yeah. it. But I am so glad to see this fight being taken yes, properly up. And the and Tony Burke, the industrial relations minister, is obviously hugely invested in this legislation. I do think it's going to get up in some way. What's interesting is that Uber has pretty much agreed to it in principle. Wow. Yeah, after long negotiations that started with the Transport Workers Union. Yeah. And then went to the government, Uber has agreed to it in principle. And I thought it was really interesting they're not trying to run a big scare campaign with it. That so, makes me suspicious that the legislation is weak because Uber are usually such uh, shitheads Well, I this. think it's the enormous amount of pressure put on them. No, yeah. I don't. And there hasn't been that. I Like the unions have not criticised it for being too yeah, weak. Yeah, well. And so and no, that, that would be the obvious one there are some issues with parts of it and um which industries it would cover but i would expect that we would see some version of this passed by the end of the year great beautiful what have you got this week i'm actually coming up to my long service leave oh yes which i'm really excited about but i have that feeling i don't know if this happens to you when you meet your big deadline or whatever but it's happened to me my entire adult life when i'm coming up to proper time off or a holiday I start to fatigue badly. Yes. And I don't know if I'm getting, like, I'm, like, achy. I don't know if I'm getting sick or I've just got, like, general exhaustion. Like, I tried to go for a run the other day and I can run 10 kilometres, brag, and I got five minutes in and had to stop. I just felt so tired and I think that it is my body hitting hitting the wall. But I'm so excited for my long service leave. Going to be, you'll be surprised to hear, seeing a lot of family. (laughs) (laughs) That's lovely. And going to the beach. Beautiful. Reading, writing, hanging out. Can't wait. What about you? What are you doing this week? Um, Well, you've forgotten that we're going to the theatre together. Yes. (laughs) We are. Bridie, do you just not care about going to the theatre with me? (laughs) I love going to the theatre with you. No, I'm very excited about that. We will be seeing Is God Is at STC. Yeah, can't wait. Yeah, I think it's going to be good. I'm also seeing, oh, my God, look, I sound like such a fucking theatre buff. I'm also seeing Black Show Girls, <gasps> Nikia Louise, sort of, what would you call it? Like she's like gone back. So she wrote Black Show Girls years ago and put it on and she's sort of like refreshed the work a bit for putting it on again. I am desperate to see this. Yeah, it's the hot ticket. I'm not seeing that with you. <laughs> you didn't even invite me. <laughs> <laughs> This episode was produced by the brilliant Sam Devonport. Want to hear a cool story? Find us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram at CoolStoryBreeBridie, where we love to hear your views and feedback. You can also watch this entire episode on YouTube. Because we look great. <laughs> <laughs>